Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who has been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. My wife, Jan, and I have been friends with our next guest, Reverend Bobby Becker, for many years. We know her through the Center for Spiritual Living congregations she's served. Center for Spiritual Living, or CSL, is sometimes referred to as New Thought or Science of Mind, and their teachings incorporate the ancient wisdom of spiritual traditions through the ages. Bobby has also marched beside my wife and I at Pride Parades and other social justice events through the years. She's currently the Senior Minister and Spiritual Director at Namaste Center for Spiritual Living in Long Beach. Bobby is here to talk about her own story as a gay New Thought minister who grew up in the Mormon church and whose whole family was touched by addiction and mental health issues. Thank you for being here to share your story, Bobby, and welcome to Safe Home. Mm, It's good to be here. Thank you, Beth. So let's start from what it was like growing up in the Mormon church. Did you grow up in Utah or what what was that experience like for you? No, um, I grew up in California. I was born and raised here. Um, I grew up in a tiny town east of Palm Springs, about 65 miles east there. It's a mining town. It's actually a ghost town now. It's no longer there. Wow. There's not much out there. Yeah. My parents joined the Mormon church. My father did when I was seven. And you've probably seen them. They call them missionaries and they're walking around in their white shirts and ties and they're like 18 Uh years old. Yeah. But they were referred to my dad through one of his bosses. And my dad decided to join the Mormon church because my parents were sort of struggling with how to be, they were very young and they didn't really know how to be parents. So the Mormon church seemed like a great way to give them some structure and Uh and some support as very young Uh (laughs) and very wounded parents. Uh So Uh um, that's how I came into the Mormon church. And growing up in the church was was actually um, helpful for me, especially in the family and the trauma that was going on. So I had a place Mm -hmm. for me to grow spiritually, which ever since I was little, this was really important to me. Mm. The challenge came as I got older, probably my teen years, and I started to understand some of the challenges of the role of women in the Mormon church. And I felt that Mm. as a young teenager, I wasn't really clear yet about my sexual orientation. But as I came into my 20s, and I went on a mission and I went through what's called the temple ritual. You see temples and they're different than like what people attend on Sunday. These rituals further demonstrated the divide between men and women in the church, Mm -hmm. the limited role women had and polygamy, interestingly, started to come up and I started to understand more about the church's history with plural marriage, they call it. Wow. Mm. And realized what was really disturbing to me is I was told that in the afterlife, I would have to be part of a plural marriage. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm kidding. And that doesn't get talked about often. But also I realized that that my role as a woman in the church was very limited. And it was I found myself in a box. And then when I realized I was gay, it became even more complicated. Yeah. Don't you have to get called to the afterlife by your husband? Isn't that part of the deal? It's either a husband or a worthy male member. And my challenge at the time was I was the only active member in my family. 
Oh, the rest had kind of fallen off. By they then. kind of stepped away just, oh. and a lot of it was mental health issues going on with my mother at the time. Mm. And I was still attending and I realized, well, if I don't have a worthy member in my family, what happens to Uh-oh. me? Because I had no intention of getting married, yeah. at least to a man yeah. at the time. Yeah. So I decided to be celibate in my church and realized that that wasn't going to work either. Yeah, because that's the way they, they let you be gay in the Mormon church, right? Is If you're celibate? Yeah, it's okay to be gay. It's kind of, but it's not, they do not condone or accept Mm -hmm. any relationship, even if it's legally sanctioned by the government. So, you know, it was a big challenge for me. So I ended up coming out publicly. I think that was probably around uh, the age of 25, 26. I hadn't been in a relationship yet. I just knew I was gay. And then Mm -hmm. I was finally excommunicated at the age of 30 for standing up to the church and for being a homosexual, that their term. How did you stand up to the church? What made them so mad at you? So there's a court hearing you go to when there's the threat of excommunication. And in the beginning, when that first was going on, I decided not to go. And then I decided at the last minute that I would indeed go because I was very afraid. Mm. I was afraid of the church leadership the shame associated with it. And I decided Mm -hmm. to face it. So I went to the church, the court hearing, and I stood up about the things I felt about being both female and being a lesbian. And they were not happy. And I knew they wouldn't be. So they ended up, their conclusion was that I indeed needed to be excommunicated, but it wasn't because being gay was part of it. But the bigger sin in their mind was that I stood up to the church and said that what you're doing is wrong to people like me. Yeah, it's how not dare love. you do that? <laughs> right? And oh, yeah. So uh. I was excommunicated and the crime I committed was worse than murder. So What? Yeah. You mean murderers don't get excommunicated? They can, but their sin is not as severe as as the one that I participated in which was speaking out against the church. So Wow, that says a lot. Wow, that's huge. I think you should wear that like a badge of honor. I do. I did. And it wasn't until I sort of sat in that court hearing and faced that, that I realized what I said to them that made the the situation more was, look, I'm a child of God, whatever God is. Mm -hmm. You don't get to tell me. No one tells me whether I'm loved by God or what that means. That's between me and God and not between me and you. And so you can do whatever you want, but you have no authority over who I am and my life whether it's on this planet or after that's for me. And that did not sit well. So I'm imagining you at, you said 30, I was 30 30, with a bunch of, I'm going to guess a bunch of old white guys. Kind of, I would say there were a total of five men on the panel. There was an, an Hispanic gentleman and four white guys. Okay. And they were sort of in the range of age between probably 40 and above. So Okay. Yeah. They probably just had no idea what to do with you. <laughs> they did not like, uh, yeah, they, 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 they are not uh, happy with a woman standing no, up. Like no. That. No. How dare you? Wow. And at that time, were you already connected with a New Thought Church or was that hadn't appeared yet? I was starting to connect with New Thought philosophies. Philosophy. Uh, you probably have heard of names like Wayne Dyer, uh-huh. Marianne Williamson, uh-huh. 
Don Miguel Ruiz. My therapist gave me the four agreements. I was in therapy trying to deal with coming out and all that. So all those people are part of uh, New Thought or CSL? They're part of New Thought. CSL is a New Thought philosophy, but it doesn't own it. In fact, Unitarian is New Thought and Unity is New Thought. So anything that is, is kind of in that philosophical, okay. um, actually interesting, Mormon almost qualifies because they're more in the new thought range. A lot of what they believe kind of tips into there. But then when you get into women's roles mm. and the idea of salvation, new thought oh. doesn't believe that, you know, you have to be saved. It's an inner uh, journey, right? Yeah. 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 And it, it's not about that. It's, you know, we're all love. So there's really nothing to do except to recognize that. Ultimately, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the universalist piece of it, right? Exactly. Where everybody is saved just by being born, you're saved. Yeah, okay. You can be Christian and be new thought. You could be Muslim and be new thought, but it has to include that unity and oneness and Uh uh um yeah. So you had been digging into that, those kind of readings and those PBS specials. (laughs) I don't know, I remember Wayne Dyer on TV and you know all those things. So that was kind of in your blood at that time. I was introduced to it actually from my partner at the time who was reading that at a very young age. And I took it on. I went, wow, I've never heard anything like this. I mean, you're just Mm. loved. I don't have to earn it. Yeah. I don't have to be in this box to be okay. And I'm perfect the way I am. And that was such a new concept to me. The religion I was raised in, you had to get baptized pretty dang quick because if you weren't baptized and the baby died, the baby would go to hell. So sounds like Catholic or Lutheran. 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 Yeah. yeah. It's like, geez, how can you look at a little baby and say, well, they're going to hell unless I do this other little thing on them? <laughs> well, you have to go back to the history of religion oh. and religion or the church. The church at the time was creating a business. And so oh, how sure. it expanded his business was to involve itself in certain rituals. Yeah. Yep. You got to do this thing and this thing and this thing and pay because in the money <laughs> in the origins of the church, there was no such thing as hell. That's right. That's a new invention, huh? That isn't even in the Bible. Oof. So Christianity, this is more of a new thing in the past, probably 600 years, I'd probably say. Uh, so, yeah, boy, it's so powerful. Oof. So I imagine you're 30, you're probably on a career path and you're trying to figure out what ends up with your spirituality and who you are as a lesbian. And ah, how did you land after being excommunicated? What grounded you? What brought you to your center? Well, when I came out, you know, my parents had a very difficult time with it. And they didn't speak to me for about 17 years. What? 17 years? They didn't speak to you? Like you tried and they just wouldn't return your calls or? Well, even more complicated was my dad worked in the same workplace I worked in. Oh, no. We would see each other in the hallway and (gasps) he wouldn't say anything. And I would attempt, I would try to talk to them. I would try to reach out to them over the years. And it just, it just seemed to get more and more difficult. And just because you're gay? Yes. Wow. So one of the things... I got angry. I bet. (laughs) And around 30, I started to reach out to organizations. I became part of GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Uh Alliance Against Defamation. Uh And I was on their board at the beginning because I was also doing, got involved in a group. It was called Hollywood Supports. It doesn't exist today. Hmm. But they used to do diversity training in the workplace all around sexual orientation. So I became a trainer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did training at workplaces all over L.A. and Orange County. Nice. So I got 
comfortable talking about being a lesbian. Yeah. And that, that would do was it. incredibly empowering. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I started a um, LGBT support group in my workplace. So I came out. That was interesting. I had death threats and hate mail and all sorts of stuff. No kidding. And vandalism on my property, my house. I mean, it was an interesting time. This was around 1991. Good night. And then myself, the group I started and Disney and AT&T, we came together. There were about three or four of us. And we started a statewide coalition for LGBT workplace support groups, partnered with Human Rights Campaign, and started to do a lot of work in the workplace, including helping pass workplace protection in 1991. Nice. Is that when your domestic partner or whoever could be on your insurance? Is that that kind of thing? Not yet. Oh, not yet. That was just workplace protection. That was just so you wouldn't get fired. Not fired. Oh my God. That 1991, we didn't have that yet? Nope. Oh my good Lord. Thank you for doing that work. My goodness. We've come a long ways. So I got involved in that. And then I was part of the different groups that were working to pass domestic partnership in the state of California. I was involved in that. So those kinds of things helped me speak to it. And on the other side, I was also studying new thought that really helped me recover from the trauma in my family and associated Mm -hmm. with religious trauma from having been Mormon, because you really don't know what a lot of the beliefs that you embody that mm-hmm. affect how you love yourself, how you see yourself, how you see others. And my family, for lack of a better description, they were a hot mess. Okay, so what was going on? When my mother was alive, she's been gone 11 years now. She was mm-hmm. bipolar, borderline, mm-hmm. and OCD. Oof, those are three really tough things. Oof. Yeah, she was like a trifecta of sorts. Mm. And religion tends to encourage people to cover up family trauma, yeah, to hide things like yeah. addiction and mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And so I was coming out, too, as being part of a family, like stopped keeping that secret about addiction, about trauma, about the things mm-hmm. that were happening to me. And up until that point, it was only within me and I didn't really understand that this was not acceptable. Some things in my house were not acceptable. I didn't understand that. Mm. And I think when you grow up in a family where there's a lot of mental trauma and religious trauma, those secrets are so deep, you don't even know you have them. Yeah. What are some of the things that you were trying to hide? There was a lot. There was physical abuse and psychosexual abuse in my home. My mother's mental health was running the house. And Mm. so as children, we lived in the garage. What? And And how um, many kids were there? There were five of us. And all five kids lived in the house. And the only time we came into the house was at night to shower and sleep. Whoa. But otherwise you were in the garage. Yes. So. Wow. And there's a lot associated with that. There were things like as children, my mother really, it's sad to say she shouldn't have been a parent. Right. Mm. There was not much help at the time for her. And even if there was, she would just ignore it mm-hmm. and reject it. So there were things like we undressed in the garage, walked across the house completely naked until I was 18 to go to the shower and do the same to get to my room. There were, that's an example of, there was, there's so much to that. That was an example of how my mom tried to survive 
with having five kids who were messy. Okay, so she just didn't want you guys traipsing through and tracking dirt and stuff through the house. So she said, okay, no clothes, no shoes in the house. Wow, that's pretty extreme. We ate outside. We never had access to the refrigerator or any food in the house. She would give it to us. And so it was an extreme situation. And understandably, the only way they were able to do that without being, I think, thrown in jail was um, because we lived in this tiny mining town where everyone had secrets. Ah, ah. Now, didn't you go to a friend's house and realize, oh, they have a dining room table and like regular bedrooms and stuff. Did you not realize it was strange? I just thought they were lucky that they got to do what they did and I couldn't. Okay. I didn't think, well, my mom's wrong. I, because honestly to live with that was more than my psyche could handle. And I knew that somewhere, Uh, you know, uh, I remember when I was seven, I said to my mom, I want to move out. uh, And I told her why, which were the reasons I, some of the things I've shared uh-huh. And my mom said no. And um, I knew and I remember taking what I knew and going somehow my psyche was like, I have to push I have to push this away and survive in this situation. Wow. And it yeah. got more and more severe the older we got. So. Wow. Wow. Now, how old were you when you got out? Did you go to college and get away? Did you move out with a boyfriend or not a boyfriend, <laughs> a girlfriend or somebody? No, I, How did you, you know, out? in the town, I, I went away to college. Okay. I also flunked out of college after my first year because of the trauma that I was, yeah. that was just kind of taking over. And I was a straight A student in high school. So this was kind of like <sighs> difficult. There was no way to understand sort of some basic rules in my house were so confusing. You never knew mm. when you were going to be in trouble. It could be yeah. for anything. It could wow. be for anything that in some houses you go, well, why would you get in trouble for that? In my house, there was, there was so much confusion around what the rules were. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So our neighbor next door came over with a cake one time. It was for Easter and she gave us the cake. And it was sitting on our inside in the dining room table. And my mom, we asked, we were in the garage, mom, can we have a piece of this cake? Not right now. And the cake sat there. So what would happen is we would go in, if we were going to go into the shower or we came in to go to the restroom, we would take a piece of the cake with our fingers because it was sitting there, but it was like maybe day two or day three. Okay. The neighbor asked my dad, how's the cake? And, and my, my dad had said, well, Carolyn must love it because she's dug a hole in the cake, right? <laughs> now, you would think that's just funny, right? Uh-huh. We got spanked. Oh. And we were wow. put on restriction, which meant we had to sit in the garage and not play for like two weeks. Oh, my gosh. So how, how you wrap your head around how something like that is wrong versus just being kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the cake was just sitting there. Why, why didn't they just give you the cake? Was it like a a test or like a passive aggressive kind of thing. My mom did that all the time. She just, sometimes she just didn't want to give to us. It was Uh, too much trouble. It was, you know, I can't really say, I mean, it was just part of her psychosis was a lot of times to withhold. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And that's as much as I can probably understand it, you know? And, and so to try to, you know, so in my twenties, my mom, I, I don't even, I think I had a boyfriend at the time and she wasn't happy about it, whatever. 
she took me to therapy. She was talking to a therapist. And so my mom's in there and I was a pretty perfect kid. I mean, I didn't do anything. I was good at that point. I was, I did what my parents told me to do. I was compliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my mother was complaining about me and the therapist looked confused and I was just holding my head down, not even seeing it. I didn't know what was going on. And she separated us. She sent me out in the hallway, talked to my mom and then brought me back in and sent my mom out. This is my mom's therapist. Mm. And I had moved back home for a year. She goes, I don't do this. But when you leave here, you need to move out of that house. You need to get out and you need to get out now. And she goes, because I'm afraid for your life. I don't. Because I think she saw in me, I was suicidal at the time. And she saw something in me after a few questions, which, and she said, you need to get out. And Mm. that's what I did. Wow. That was brave of her (laughs) because she was your mom's therapist. But she she saw a desperate uh, situation happening in front of her eyes. Wow. She did. And so you believed her and you moved out. I No one had ever observed my family in the way she had. And I'm sure there was more of a conversation there, but it was just so much. Yeah. And I knew in me that she was right. I knew. Mm-hmm. And then... What I eventually did is within a couple of years after that, I came out. But I knew when I came out, my family would reject me. You knew the end. Mm. I knew it. And I knew by doing it that it would give me some freedom to be who I needed to be. And so even though those 17 years of them not speaking to me was challenging, it was a gift because I got to reparent and look yeah. at things and live a life without such involvement by them because it was pretty controlling. Mm-hmm. And I was able to really see what had happened to me. And yeah. because they were not involved in my life whatsoever, I I had a lot of freedom. Yeah. Did you feel like a butterfly just spreading its wings for the first time? It took a little while because uh. of the shame associated with mm-hmm. being so judged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But eventually, yes. That's a lot to undo. And it was a lot for a young person to reconcile and and resolve, you know. Yeah. Who were your supports back then when you were off on your own and making that big shift? In my middle 20s, not a lot. I don't Mm. know that anyone really knew. Mm. I kept a lot to myself. It wasn't until probably like I started to go out and try to find the gay community because I Mm -hmm. didn't know where it was. Yeah. And I started to meet a couple of people, but again, people didn't know what had happened to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it took another bit of a courageous jump to get into therapy and say, I'm gay. Oh, okay. Wow. And so I was able to find a therapist that was actually a lesbian. And so mm-hmm. she helped me come out. But the coming out part was much less challenging as it was to come out for what had happened to me as a child. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. There's different kinds of coming out, isn't there? Yeah. It's not always about your sexual orientation. It's all different ways of coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I had to come out as a a mom of a person who was addicted to drugs. You know, there's different ways you have to open up yourself to the world that may or may not be accepted beautifully. And luckily for me, it's been accepted and supported. Our family's been really, really supported. So I'm very grateful for that. But there is that like, oh, crap. 
what are people going to think about me now? Right. With all sorts of different things. And and I suppose with something so intrinsic and so ingrained in you as the way you were brought up, that must have been really scary to just put that out there in any way. Yeah, because it's I was ashamed of the things that had happened to me. I was ashamed of the things my mom made me do. I mean, yeah. there's so much in that. And, mm. and it's still sometimes if I share something, I'll go, mm-hmm. wow, that just I mean, what what does that look like for others? Yeah. Not as much. It's 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 yeah. minimal. And I know every time I share it mm-hmm. that there's power in the fact that yeah. you transcend that experience and you heal from that experience. Keeping it a secret mm-hmm. keeps the wound. Yes. This is one of the missions of this podcast is to destigmatize addiction, mental health, all of these things that we keep inside right. because that helps no one. No. And if we just share with each other, with someone safe, with a therapist, with a minister, with someone, it it helps so much. And then it will help someone else as well. Someone else will go, oh, that happened to me. And maybe we can talk about that. Or right. they, they also feel like, oh, maybe I can open up about that, too. So I think it's so important. So I really appreciate you sharing your, your difficult story. I'm sure a lot of people will be will be moved to be a little more vulnerable themselves or to seek help themselves. So, really Well, and, and the thing is, whatever you give power to has power over you, right? Yes. So if you give power to the trauma by keeping it a secret, that's where the power lies. Yes. And you can't heal anything until you feel it. Yeah. The only way to feel it is it's got to come out. Yeah, you got to go through it. Oof, it's so painful sometimes, but that's the only way. Shoot. Wish there was a different way, but I don't think there is. Well, it seems to be the way as humans that we awaken. And it's not just trauma that happens in our own lives, but it's trauma that can go back generations, which is held in our DNA as well. So addiction, in some cases, you know, of course, they're wondering, is there something in our DNA Mm -hmm. that um, that makes us more vulnerable to it? Mm-hmm. And I have two brothers that died of addiction. Wow. Just this year. Well, one is addiction and the other one was mental health. It looked like addiction, but after I went deep into it, it was more mental health. So Oh really? Yeah. Did did um did they kill themselves or did the disease just physically take them over? In their cases both. In my I have a brother that was he's fifty three. He died December sixteenth of mm-hmm. this last year. I think he probably used some drugs when he was a teenager, but became very healthy physically and unresolved trauma his entire life. So when he turned, yeah. when he was about 43, he started to drink mm-hmm. and use, use drugs in a different mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And over the next 10 years, he drank himself to death. So he died of alcoholism on wow. December 16th. Oh, and it was, so sorry. it was unrecognizable. Wow. I did not. I know one time I talked to him on Zoom and I, I'm looking at him. It's his eyes, but there's nothing else that looks like him. Wow. That's terrible. My older brother died January 16th, 30 days later this year. Wow. And he died of suicide. Mm. My guess is he was dealing with some kind of mental health issue, bipolar, something Mm-hmm. It's funny with him. He smoked pot for many years for anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I knew he struggled with anxiety. We all have in my family. 
Yeah, I bet. But he never struggled with alcohol, really. He, he even said, I don't like alcohol. It makes me angry. Mm-hmm. He died of an overdose of methamphetamine and fentanyl. And it was four <sighs> times the deadly dose in his system. Did he, did he realize fentanyl was in there or was it like an accidental overdose? That I don't know. We but don't know. I know with my brother, he probably knew what he was doing because mm. the last time I spoke to him, I used to, he lived on the streets for the last four years. Oh. Um, and I would see him in jail when he was arrested. He would reach out to me and I would go see him because mm. I knew he would be sober. Like yeah. he, cause he was using on the streets. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. how you survive. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that he was broken. Mm. He said that he was just waiting to die. Oh, and that's our last, that conversation. And he just uh. didn't really have any hope. He said, I'm broken. I can't seem to get out of this. And he really didn't, either brother just could not get themselves into getting help. They just, I think the story was just so overwhelming for them. Yeah. And it seems like when you were growing up, it it was not encouraged to go seek help elsewhere. It sounds like it was very insular and just keep things in this garage. (laughs) Well, the secret, yeah, you can't go talk about, you know, mom because, (laughs) and I think out of, out of my family, I'm the only one that ended up, I was in therapy in my 20s. I got into therapy pretty much after that point with that my mom's therapist. Oh, good. And I stayed in there for about 15 years. Wow. And I still go occasionally when an issue pops up that I cannot work through on my own. I have a therapist on speed dial and yeah. I reach out to her. She's been on my contact list for 20 years. She knows my story. We're able to get through things. And it's not that I have to be in there all the time, which if I was, that's fine too. But I just don't know how you make it through some of the traumas without having, I have a therapist, I I have a minister, I have a spiritual coach. I have people I reach out to. I don't try to deal with it on my own. Yeah. But your siblings... um... How about the other ones? Did you have two more, right? I have a younger brother who's really struggling right now. He's 47. Mm. He is melting down a bit right now. And we've been talking like this is kind of the point your other brothers mm. were just really starting to go down. Mm. And I don't know what's going to happen there. And there's, you know, I, all I can do is love him and continue yeah. to encourage him. This journey, as you know, you cannot try to control or push people. It does not work. In my spiritual belief system, I know that every person has a journey that is theirs. Mm -hmm. I really try not to judge it because Mm -hmm. it's not mine to judge. Mm -hmm. So he's got this journey and I'm, I hope he makes it. Yeah. But I also know that, you know, I have this belief that it's just not this life. You have other options. We just don't know all those answers, right? I think so, too. It feels very ominous. But, uh, yeah, everybody has their path, and it will lead them to whatever is their next thing after this life. Who knows what that is? And, uh, yeah, and I agree with you that all we can do is love them, let them know that we're here for them if they need anything that we can give them. And But people don't like to be made a project or... Well, I don't. You know, so yeah, no, I don't like that. You know, I was in Al-Anon for a number of years, too, because of mm-hmm. dealing with addiction mm-hmm. in my family. And mm-hmm. so fortunately, that group helped me understand that I am also powerless. 
Yes, that's right. And so me supporting another person's addiction with money or to try to do the work for them is hurting me too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like a losing battle, you know, throwing, throwing money at it or, you know, throwing people into this rehab and that rehab and this program and that program. If they don't want to go, well, that's just torching you both. It's like, uh, but it's, it's so difficult to just watch people struggle so hard. It is. And it's part of our journey is to be able to Mm -hmm. kind of be able to sit in compassion, which is, man, I have, my heart goes out. I'm here when you're ready. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had to make choices of not bringing family members into my home. Mm-hmm. My older brother didn't even know where we lived because I knew if he was using, he was probably going to steal. Yeah, steal. Because that's what he did. That's just how, how that goes. That, yeah, that's uh, how works. he supported his life. Sure. And so yeah. it's, it's not personal. It's just what it, it is what it is. And yeah, so and you, everyone has to protect themselves. But letting them know that you're there when they need help, that has helped us so much with Joey to maintain that positive connection, no matter what he was doing or using or whatever, just to know that we were still here and still loved him. Every day I would either text him or leave him a message or something that we love you. I love you. Whatever I can do to help, just let me know. And eventually it happened. And he said, okay, mom, I need help. Right. So that's, that's the hope. But, you know, his journey's not over you know, and, and no one's journey's over until they're gone, I guess. But you just, everybody's responsible for their own path. And we just help with the tools that we can provide other people. Right. Without going overboard so hard. Now, do you think that the therapy helped you avoid the substances that, like your siblings did? or You know, I don't think kind of so <laughs> because I was never really interested or hmm. had a pull towards that. Oh, that's um, lucky. You know, growing up Mormon, for me, I stayed away from alcohol and drugs. Okay. And I didn't really have any exposure to personal exposure to even alcohol till I was like 29, 30. So it was because you were just compliant, like you were just a compliant, good Mormon. Kind of, but I think I was kind of nervous about them because I saw what was mm. kind of happening with other you know, family mm-hmm. members around me and, and, and I just didn't trust, you know, mm-hmm. the, that substances, even when I first drank, I remember I went, Oh, that, that's what it feels like to be buzzed or, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. and I didn't mind a little bit of it, but, but even to this day, I'm not one that drinks much. Mm-hmm. I drink it to enjoy the taste or mm-hmm. whatever the experience is. But it doesn't go beyond that for me. Mm-hmm. And it it's never been something I've enjoyed. I don't like that complete loss of control. And when I say yeah, control, I it's either. almost like I don't like the feeling of physically being, you know, disoriented. And uh-huh. honestly, when I see other people sort of drink too much, I step away from them. Yeah. So and I have a sister. My sister's doing well. She's, oh, good. she actually goes to Namaste now and she's left okay. the Mormon church in the last couple of years. And we talk about this because, you know, my siblings always thought I was sort of different than them. Mm. My father said to me once, he goes, you know, if you didn't look like me, I think you were adopted. Wow. I think because somehow I jumped into wanting to be more self-aware as a young person, mm. 
-hmm. not wanting to continue to feel the way I was feeling. Mm -hmm. I was willing to do anything in my 20s and 30s to diminish that feeling of, I don't want to live like this. Yeah. The feelings I had inside were just so dark and so, I just, I hated myself and I did not want to continue to feel that way. Yeah, yeah. That's probably more, my focus was more on that rather than my siblings sort of took on mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol to cover up that to dark numb. feeling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was not my way. You're like, I want to dig into it and figure out what it is. And I can't explain why I was different that way. I do not yeah. know. And I, again, I kind of go back to the path is, you know, I teach that all paths lead to an awakening. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can I judge that mine is better or worse? Cause mm-hmm. I don't believe that mm-hmm. I believe in reincarnation. That's sort of my, the background mm-hmm. of my spiritual. So I believe I've probably had that journey. Maybe that's yeah, why right. I don't want it. Yeah. Yeah. You've been there, done that. Okay. Check that off the list. That didn't work. So that's not what this life, this life's about for me. Yeah. This life is more about once in my twenties and early thirties started to go through a really committed path of self-discovery. Then it became about, I wanted to support others. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you were working in a corporate job. I was. And then you became a minister. How did that happen? So I was a corporate executive. Um, I was in charge of public relations and different programs at uh, an organization I worked for. And I started to get more into spiritual leadership and delve into coaching and things like that. And I was finding that my values within the corporate system were not, we were out of alignment and I was finding that this isn't really what I want to do anymore. So I decided to retire early and financially Mm -hmm. I could. Mm -hmm. And so I retired at 51 Mm -hmm. and finished, I was in ministerial school and um, I finished the program a year after I retired. And, Mm -hmm. and I, I wanted to do something that, was meaningful in a different way if I could. And I actually Mm -hmm. wanted that to be my vocation. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's different ways to do it because how you are in life to me is you're a spiritual leader because of how you are in life. Mm -hmm. You can do it if you're in the corporate world, but because I could leave, because the opportunity presented itself that I could, I chose to leave to do this as my life. Nice. So I left, finished school, stepped into different spiritual communities near where I lived. Mm -hmm. And um, I chose this particular faith because it's very open because I could teach from almost anything for me, as long as it speaks of oneness and unity. Yeah. And so that's how I got into that. Wow. That's quite, it's quite a story. I think that's really, that's really amazing. Now you have a wife and a teenager, I think, right? Your daughter's Mm -hmm. a teen now. Yeah. Oh my gosh going to be a senior this next year. So she's going to be 17 in October. Oh, she really is a teenager. Oh, shoot. Last time I saw her, she was like a little girl. Dang it. (laughs) How are you parenting? You know, obviously different than the way you were parented, but how is your, all that trauma and all of the things you've learned, how did that affect your parenting? Well, first, I didn't want to be a parent. That's why I never had children myself. Oh. Because I felt that I was too nervous that I couldn't be a different parent than what Mm. I was parented as. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that differently today. When Mm -hmm. Janine and I started dating, it's Janine's daughter, step parent. 
Okay. And I had to make a choice about dating somebody who had a child. Yeah. If I was going to do this, I had to be committed. Mm-hmm. And so Janine and I got together almost 14 years ago. Part of what I was learning was that anything that was rising up in me in association with being a parent had to do with my own inner child. Mm-hmm. So having Reese in my life healed a lot of that. Mm-hmm. It 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 revealed even more of what I was carrying as to what a child's life can be. Yes. And the things that frustrated me with Reese, I realized were things because I sometimes I would look at her and think, wow, she has it so nice. And I didn't have it that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what it turned around to be was, look what I get to be. Yes. And a step-parent's a little bit different experience, too, because when she became a teenager, she and I were always close. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, not so much, but as mm-hmm. time went on, we became really mm-hmm. close. And then when she became a teenager, as teenagers do, especially girls, I think, mm-hmm. one of us was picked to be more of a place to put anger and frustration. Okay. Uh-huh. That was me. Oh, that was you. Oh, lucky So even you. though when she was little, she and I were like inseparable, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, up until she was about 13. And then when she was 13, it shifted and it was very painful. I bet. And here I am again dealing with some of that, of yeah. being a parent regardless of, and loving someone regardless of how they looked and saw me and treated me. Yes. So, so here I am again. And it's only up until the last probably nine months. And I started to get involved again, reaching out for help as a step parent. What do I do with this? Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like anything I'm doing. She just really dislikes mm-hmm. me all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And it was so painful. And it brought up so much of my own childhood of being loved. And, yes. and I found a really great step parent group that helped me with that. Nice. And it's called Nacho Kids. <laughs> um, which is not your kid is kind of what the, and I was able to, so I just step into a different role as a parent now as a teenager, which is I take Janine's lead more. Uh-huh. Um, okay. I don't take things personally as, yeah. and I've learned to it's do hard. that so much better. Yeah. That's tough. And I don't have to have a voice on things and I'm an A personality. So I have an opinion about everything. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. So I don't. So hard. When our kids go through adolescence, it pulls up any leftover garbage from your own adolescence. And thank God you had so much awareness and done so much work around your own childhood, but I'm sure it just pulled up all sorts of extra, extra fun things for you to deal with. For Janine and I, it was really tough because there were points where I'm like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. You know, you have that question and the things that I had to do reminded me of even addiction in a sense of dealing mm-hmm. with someone in addiction, which is I had to draw the line. Mm-hmm. I had to step away. Yeah. I yeah. had to let Janine be the primary parent in the house and I stepped completely out of it. Mm-hmm. And then came back when I had recalibrated and was able to reset myself so that I could be in it without it being so personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's so tough. It's so tough. And I think kids nowadays are just having such a hell of a time with everything out there, the social media and the preponderance of drugs everywhere and pandemic. just temptations. Oh, and the pandemic shutting everything down. Oh, the poor kids. Ah. She wasn't in school for t- two of her <sighs> high school years, freshman and sophomore year. She wasn't at school. <sighs> 
that whole group of kids are just going to be a little bit, a little bit warped from all that pandemic stuff. It, you know, we all did the best we could. There's nothing else we could have done, but man, you can't just take away school for two years and expect everything to just turn out fine. I mean, that's a lot. And yet it seems like this is the journey. These yeah. kind of, I mean, if you think about it, World War II would have been one yeah. of those situations. The Spanish flu. Yeah, just shake us up. The shaking shake up the that whole happens. Thing up. A, we just haven't had a global kind mm. of ex, uh, yeah. event that has done this. Yeah. But it seems to happen about every, you know, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, this was ours. I hope it's almost over. <laughs> I hope we're almost Whatever done that is, because oh I don't know what, yeah. I don't know what yeah. this is going to unfold like. So, yeah, I know. Yeah. It always feels like, okay, this has got to be the worst part. Now we're going to get better. And like, oh, no, there's more. Oh, no, oh, no there's more. There's more. Yeah. Shoot. Well, is there anything I didn't ask that you would like to say something about? Or is there anything I've left out? Well, you know, the only thing I'd say is I think there's very few people on the planet that escape family trauma. Mm -hmm. And whatever stories and experiences we carry in our life, if we don't deal with them, they're going to manifest in ways that we're either in addiction with something or we're a product of addiction, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm doing even in my own spiritual center is we have what's called practitioners and I'm getting them training to be chaplains because people are not always comfortable to talk to therapists. But if we don't have somewhere for people to go and mm -hmm. explore and heal, mm -hmm. which is what we do in my community, we explore yeah. and heal. That's yeah. the point yeah. of it. That's and we do it idea. together because it's in our DNA to be sort of community based mm -hmm. that everybody has a journey. And it's, I think whatever secrets we carry again, if those secrets don't come out, they will manifest in ways in which we cope in ways that can be self-destructive. And I can't say that I have never been self-destructive because I have, mm -hmm. but I'm not self-destructive anymore in a way that I'm not conscious of. Mm -hmm. So I use any and anything to any kind of tool. I mean, I'm even in using hypnotherapy right now for anxiety. I'm finding such nice. peace in it. Nice. And I didn't even know I had anxiety. I thought I was huh. pretty much okay with that. But then I realized... You're so used to it. <laughs> I was used to it. Uh -huh. But, you know, we don't know what we don't know. But uh -huh. if we're just sort of existing and not paying attention, not only are we not realizing our best life, realizing more peace and joy in our life, we're also causing damage out there without being conscious. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't mm -hmm. care what you use. I don't care if you use mm -hmm. a 12-step program, which is AA or Al-Anon or anything else, or a therapist mm -hmm. or a chaplain or a minister or a support group. Do something. Yeah, yeah. Everybody needs to work on themselves. And uh, I, I think if people have teens that are struggling one of the best things parents can do is go work on themselves. Yes. Model that behavior. Like, let's go dig in. And then your kid might notice, wow, mom's a little less anxious. Mom's a little more grounded. Mom's a little less um, barking at me. And they might go, oh, adults can work on themselves. Well, maybe I'll work on myself. I think that's so important. And it will help the adults in the room to get through whatever the kid's going through, which is Really, really tough. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really proud of you for getting your uh, practitioners on board with that and and making that space in your congregation. That's so important. And I'm sure everyone can find somewhere, somebody, uh, you might have to dig a little bit, 
find somewhere to get some help and get some self-realization and, and personal growth. I think that's a really, really good message. Yeah. So, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here and sharing your really important and uh, rather harrowing story. And I am so glad that you have gone through the work that you needed to go through so you can be here to help other people now. That's really remarkable. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I bet. Me too. <laughs> yeah. It can go a lot of different ways, right? Yes. Uh, well, it's been wonderful knowing you for all these years and I love watching you and your family grow. And I know we're going to collaborate on a few other things in the future. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, Beth. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with Bobby Becker. Please share the episode with anyone you know who might benefit from hearing her wise and inspirational words. And please find us on social media, on YouTube. And we do have a Patreon account if you would like to be a member of Patreon, where you support the podcast with a small donation every month of $5, 10 or $25. And then in exchange, you get a few extra goodies that we can offer you as our appreciation for your support. So thank you to our current Patreon members, and please consider joining as well. Patreon.com slash safe home. So thank you everyone for listening. Bobby and I want you all to stay safe. safe.